Well, good morning, my brothers and sisters. Glad to be with you again. We're here for the second half of our Faith Trusting God uh, sermon. Uh, today, we're going to be focusing on the application side of things a little bit more. What does it mean to really be, God bless you, to really be trusting God today? Uh, may God bless us all. In fact, let's pray that, that he would do that. Our, our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and uh, Lord, we acknowledge that you are the Almighty. You're the Sovereign. Um, we, we, have, we bring nothing. Um, we just bring ourselves and, and lay it before you. Um, we just pray that you will be in the midst of our activities today, that all of this will abound to your honor and glory, and, uh, and bless us through it, we pray. Uh, Lord, I offer this sermon, I'm your conduit. May it be your word that goes out, though. Um, uh, speak through me. Get me out of the way. Talk to your people. Prepare their hearts even now to receive what you have for them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So by way of introduction, again, let me remind you that we're the theme of this whole business is this idea of the righteous shall live by faith. And what does it actually mean, live by faith type of thing? And in particular, what does that mean as we look at a culture that seems to be uh, rapidly, rapidly departing from the Christian foundations that we had in our culture only a few generations ago? And, and, uh, and so what do we do in a culture like that that we're increasingly countercultural? Um, are we really ready for that, and, and do we really trust God to work in that and work through us and carry us through that? So let's see where we are and where we need to be uh, by remembering uh, from last week the principles that we garnered from reviewing the lives of a few of the Old Testament patriarchs. Uh, if you weren't here for that, we looked at, at Joseph, Moses, and Abraham and saw how God was working in, in their lives in different ways and, and through many various trials and so forth. And we, we glean a bunch of principles from that, from the human weaknesses and all the problems that creates, the fallen world with evil and suffering. This idea, though, that God has a gracious and wonderful plan and all that, we don't always get it. It's very paradoxical to us sometimes. It doesn't seem to add up. It doesn't seem to make sense. But forgiveness and restoration are there. Uh, I added a couple of things to the list that weren't on the summary sheet last week. But I think it's very valid. We saw that God makes a way where there is no way. He's faithful. Uh, we saw that with Moses and that God is working on us. And all of those patriarchs, he was uh, preparing them for a greater ministry, building them up, refining their character along the way. We saw that trusting in this God of grace and a commitment to his plan, not our plan, his plan, that's true life success, and that such people are able to be lights in, a, in an increasingly dark world. Uh, so we want to look, we want to at least think in terms of contextually, what are the types of challenges that you might be facing uh, today going forward? And here's just, you know, a handful of things that, that might be involved generally. Uh, you may be trying to raise a, a family in a godly manner, and it used to be that the, the, the constructs, the institutions of society were kind of supportive. They were, they were uh, starting from the same set of principles that you are. But increasingly, that's not true. And in fact, a lot of times now, the institutions are kind of working against you. So how do you, how do you work with that? How do you even just growing up in, in, a, in a pagan world, right? The influence tends to undermine your own morality and your own uh, beliefs and your own foundational system uh, that's governing your life. If you're trying to live Christ-centered in a me-centered world, 
normal, natural human beings are me-centered. Being Christ-centered is a completely different thing. But that's what we're called to. Christ said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. The world isn't anything about that, right? They're, they're not thinking about that at all. Okay, but the theme of this message, though, this particular message, I'm not going to look at any of the specific challenges, right? It's a myriad. You could all be facing all kinds of different things going on in your, in your life. What I want to do, though, is get you to think of how to think properly about challenges in general and what's going on with that. Romans 12, 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewal of the mind, how we think. It's not a, a power-positive thinking thing, but it's a very critical that you think correctly about things if you're going to have personal victory and life success. Okay, so a few of the principles from the patriarchs, I'm going to break it up in a few, few blocks, if you will. So this first set, we're, look, we're going to look at this idea that in human weakness, there's all kinds of problems internally generated. We just have issues because we're fallen human beings. Fallen human beings are also operating in a fallen world that's full of evil and suffering and brokenness, so we get out external pressures as well. And in all of this, it, God's plan doesn't always make sense. I mean, remember Joseph uh, being betrayed, uh, sold into slavery, winds up in prison. How's God, what is God doing with this? How does that make any sense? A lot of times it doesn't make sense to us. And so we get a lot of confusion. There's confusion in our lives. And Dr. Dobson said this about the confusion factor in his book, When God Doesn't Make Sense. He said, interestingly enough, pain and suffering do not cause the greatest damage. Confusion is the factor that shreds one's faith. The human spirit is capable of withstanding enormous discomfort, including the prospect of death, if the circumstances make sense. Many martyrs, political prisoners, and war heroes have gone to their graves willingly and confidently. The confusion factor is what's killing us. And the problem is that we, we see dimly. We don't see the picture clearly, what's going on. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. See, we only get a small fraction of the big picture as we walk through life. It's like looking through the world through a straw. You know, you can only see so much of what's going on. The pro so, so life, this faith walk of ours, it's paradoxical. Um, we, it doesn't make sense. It seems contradictory sometimes. And this is the reason. Isaiah recorded for us in the 55th chapter, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the essence of it. We don't think like God, naturally. And we wind up with these distorted views about the very nature of the gospel and what it is that we believe and what's going on here. Back in uh, last summer, in my Amazing Grace sermon, I talked about these inadequate evangelism methods where we, we, we have the tagline, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which is entirely true. The problem is, though, if that's all you ever hear, you may wind up with a whole bunch of unrealistic expectations about what this wonderful life is, is doing. See, as we saw from our patriarchs last week, 
That wonderful plan might include decades of doing lowly menial tasks. And then several more decades dealing with a bunch of ornery people. That was Moses a lot. He had about 80 years of this, right? Joseph, this wonderful plan for his life, multiple betrayals and an extensive time, several years imprisoned in the pit. That's where Joseph was living. The wonderful plan could include unbearable trials, seemingly unbearable trials, like when Abraham was commanded by God to sacrifice his own son. All this stuff was part of God's wonderful plan for their lives, okay? And then to compound that problem, we have this prosperity gospel thing going on out there these days where somehow the idea of, of being connected with the church and Jesus means that automatically I'm going to have all this material blessing and, and wonderfulness and com- creature comforts. And that's just, not, that's just not, that's not what Jesus is about when he talks about abundant life. It's not about all this stuff. You know, he doesn't care about stuff. That's not what life is about. But we get it all confused, see. Um, we also have, have kind of distorted views of, of, of this idea of fairness. Um, we're sometimes victims of injustice, just like Joseph was. That's very real. And some of you may have experienced that. Somewhere along the line, we've all experienced some degree of unfairness toward us by somebody, somehow. All right? But the thing I want to try and get you to think about, though, is in the grand scheme of things, if we received just pure justice from God, we'd have been condemned a long time ago because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So what I'm going to suggest to you is anything short of condemnation, we're ahead of the game, right? The second half of Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hey, if we have that going for us, then just keep that in perspective when the injustices happen. Injustice is still bad. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to dismiss it as a no big deal. It's still bad. But keep it in perspective. We're still ahead of the game when it comes on you. In fact, Jesus the guy who was subject of maybe the grossest injustice of all time, when they nailed him to a cross, an innocent man, he carries it a step further. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's his name for himself, Jesus. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy even. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. It's the eternal perspective, people, eternal perspective. I want to look briefly at this uh, verse in Ephesians 4.8. It's a little bit of a hard verse to understand sometimes as you're reading through it. Um, but it, it's, it's going to be cr- uh, critical to understanding how God operates in this fallen world, interacting with the, the dynamic of, of evil and suffering that we see. The King James, I like the King James in this instance because it's closer to the literal translation of what it actually is saying in the Greek. It says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that may not seem to make sense to a whole lot of you, but let's give it a try with the view of James Stewart. All right, this is his analysis, his exegesis of that verse, and I am thankful to Ravi Zacharias to, for bringing this guy to my attention. 
It's a lot of words, but I got to read it all to you so you get the full impact of what this guy's thinking here. The very triumphs of his foes, it means, he used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his end, not theirs. They nailed him to the tree, not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the whole world to his feet. They gave him a cross, not guessing that he would make it a throne. They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishably in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had defeated God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless and defeated. They did not know that it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. You have got to come to grips with that concept. God does not conquer in spite, merely in spite of the mystery, the dark mystery of evil. He conquers through it. He uses it, he grabs it, and bends it around to his purposes. Joseph got it. He under, remember what he said last, at the end with his brothers before him, who had the ones who had sold him into slavery, right? He said, don't fear. You meant evil against me. It was legitimately evil. They were being really bad. But God meant it for good. God took the evil of his brothers and made it into a greater good. That's how God rolls in this world. Okay, a few more principles from the patriarch. God does have a gracious plan. It, it involves forgiveness and restoration. And he makes a way in all of this. All right, let's look at a few things. This plan is very intense. God plays for keeps. God plays for cosmic keeps, people. Um, exhibit A, Christ's really, truly gruesome work that was going on at the cross. If you have never seen uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, you need to see it. Uh, I'll warn you ahead of time, it carries an R rating with good cause because it is very explicitly brutal. I think it comes closest to what really Christ went through in his passion with the crucifixion. But even there, I think he comes just slightly short because I, Isaiah described it this way. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, he was so abused in the process that you could hardly even tell he was a man. Okay, now this is the thought that, that a, an old pastor at my old church uh, gave me one time. He, he asked me this rhetoric, rhetorically. If, if the father would send his son to a forsaken death on a Roman cross to secure our salvation, to what lengths might he go to further our sanctification, to refine us and improve us and perfect us? The, here's the point. God will not hesitate to take extreme measures to accomplish his purposes. All right? you got to come to grips with this reality. Um, two weeks ago, Mike Workheiser relayed, related this uh, uh, idea from, a, from some woman, and I, I forget the details. I should have gotten back in touch with him and, and gotten all the whole story straight. But he was talking about a woman who was kind of contemplating this idea of grace, and she concluded, hey, this is a scary idea. 
It's good, a good scary, but still scary. And this was her, her logic here. She's thinking, if I'm a desperate sinner with an infinite debt load who has been saved through no merit of my own by an infinite God who paid the debt, then there's nothing he can't ask of me. She's right. That's the logic. Very intense stuff. Grace is still good, but it's a scary good, people. We've looked at this, uh, the kenosis passage, Philippians chapter 2, several times in, in recent memory, a couple of times just back in December during the incarnation series. This idea of emptying, when Christ uh, was incarnate, he emptied himself. And this is an excerpt from that passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. In this, uh, I, I've heard Matt Duransky uh, preaching on this passage before, and he talked about it in terms of Jesus giving up his rights. Right? He's the king, the almighty. And in this process of the incarnation, he gave up all, his, all of his natural rights. He became humble. And so the question for us then, are we willing to give up our rights? All of them, really, all of them, completely? No expectations? Intense stuff. On the other side of all this is the good news story. He makes a way. When we abase ourselves, when we humble ourselves completely before him, he makes a way. We don't have to strive to make it. I love the way Chuck Swindoll talks about it, a most gregarious fellow, an, an incurably positive attitude toward all of life. He said this, we are all faced with a series of great opportunities brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. Do you remember the Moses story from last week, the Red Sea thing? It looked like they, that God had led them into a trap, the Red Sea on one side, the Egyptians bearing down on them, but they didn't realize at the time, no, what God was really doing was luring the Egyptians into a trap. He was going to make a way through the sea. So it is in, in, in our circumstances in life as well. God makes a way. Our very salvation is evidence of God making a way where there is no way. There was no way. Okay, another set of, of principles. So God is working on us. He's doing the sanctification thing, conforming us to the image of Christ. When we will trust in this God and, and go with his plan, that's how we get true life success, and that's how we become lights in the dark world. All right, right after that kenosis passage in Philippians 2, there's these verses, which kind of are the capstone for this segment of, of the sermon. It says there, therefore, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's the key, right? Laying aside your rights, getting on board with God's plan, and then you can be lights in this twisted and crooked generation. That's the mission. That's what we're called to. I borrowed some of these thoughts from my brother Jim. He, uh, he did a sermon on Joseph's life back in just this past December himself. 
And uh, so here's what he had to say about this whole idea of bad things. Bad things are always bad. All right? God doesn't take bad things and change them mis- uh, magically into, make, to, into good. He rather takes the bad things and uses them. Uses them for a greater good. One of the greater goods is that he transforms us through them. Okay? Still bad, but God using it for a greater good. And here's, here's the thing that you need to really come to grips with as well. That he rarely just takes the pain away. See, God could take the, your pain away, whatever your current trial is, whatever's uh, wearing on you now. But if he did that, you'd be the exact same person just without that pain. And you're thinking, hey, that's actually not a bad deal. I'll take that. Sign me up for that, right? The problem is God isn't satisfied. He's not satisfied with us the way we are. He'd rather transform us through our pain than simply take it away. There's bigger things at stake than just our comfort. And here's the way I would put it. God is more concerned about our character than our comfort. All right? More important to God that we are people of excellence being increasingly conformed to that image of Christ rather than for us to just be merely comfortable. All right. So that's where the pruning process comes in. John chapter 15. Great passage. I I encourage you to go back and read the entire thing. But it starts off this way. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, if you go on and read some more of that, we understand that he's the vine. We are those branches. We're the branches that are enduring the pruning Think about it. It's a great word picture. Pruning, getting stuff lopped off is not very pleasant, right? Part of the process, though, and C.S. Lewis thought of it this way. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. (laughs) Good thoughts from, from Lewis, I think. I I brought this slide in the next from my uh, Amazing Grace sermon from back last summer, if you you saw that. I just pretty much lifted it straight up and plopped it in because it fits so perfectly. Uh, All these things are kind of connected at some level. So while God is trying to do this sanctification thing, conform us to Christ, what 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 we do is we underestimate how difficult of a job that really is. This depravity stuff doesn't give up easily. It's clinging at part and parcel of our being, and he's trying to drive it out. Uh, It's really tough, brutally difficult, and that's why the pruning process is so hard. It's all because of our heart. We have little pieces of our heart that still aren't fully redeemed, still aren't really fully under control of God. We have all these besetting sins maybe, right? And it's all about this, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. That's the bottom line problem for God when he's trying to do the sanctification bit. So, so in come the trials. The purpose of the trials is our perfection. Weeding out. Uh, one of the songs we sang earlier uh, it said, rid me of myself. Okay? That's what God's trying to do. Rid us of ourselves. All right? And that's where the trials come in. This is what James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, 
lacking nothing. Okay, so let's, let's look at how Paul analyzed this bit about trials in uh, his second letter to the Corinthians. And, and just let me say up front before we get into it uh, that I'm not trying to minimize anyone's trials, anything that you're going through here. I'm not trying to be patronizing or any of that. I know the trials are real. I know the pain is intense sometimes. That's all real. I get it. And I've been there too. I've had my own set of, uh, I could tell you another time, uh, some of the truly miserable times in my life that I've had. Just, just awful things going on. But this is how Paul characterizes the whole business in chapter 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, we don't mind the eternal weight of glory thing, but what is, where does Paul come off talking about light momentary stuff? He's not living where I'm living. He's not in my world. If he wouldn't say that if he knew where I was, but, but okay. Give him a break for a minute. And fast forward to, to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he gives this record of his own suffering. Right? These things that he called light and momentary. Read the record here. Five times he, he received 39 lashes from the Jews. Do that math. Right? His back was one giant scar by that point. He was beaten with rods three times. He was stoned and left for dead. And, and lived to tell the story about it miraculously. He was wrecked, shipwrecked three times, a, day, a night and a day uh, drift in the sea. Dangers on all fronts, all kinds of places through all means. Uh, lots of hardships, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food. Often without food. How many of us have been often without food? In cold and exposure, and apart from all these other things, there's the daily anxiety for the churches that was weighing on him. This, is, this was Paul's life. All right, so when he, he has a little bit of cred when he goes back and says, light and momentary. Here's the problem. When you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel light, and it doesn't seem very momentary. It seems to be lasting forever. That's why you need the eternal perspective. It's only in the eternal perspective, the idea that we have this eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us, that we are being prepared for, where any of this can kind of make sense at any level. It isn't going to, it's still not going to be easy, but with the eternal perspective, you can come to grips that, hey, God's up to something, all right? And you, and you have to cling to this idea that God is in the middle of it. He said, I will never leave you nor, nor forsake you. This story from Matthew is, is fantastic. Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Jesus and his disciples get into a boat. They're cruising across the Sea of Galilee. And a great storm arises. So the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, Jesus, was asleep. Now get this picture, right? A little boat. Heaving in the waves, water splashing, flooding into the boat, and he's sleeping. People, I have never been in that deep of a sleep. <laughs> that, that, right? That in rocking in a boat and water splashing all over me, and I'm still sleeping. But he is so cool and in control that even this raging storm and a little. It, eh. So they wake him up, they panic. Lord, save us, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose, rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And he said, okay, can I get back to my nap now, I guess he's thinking, right? 
Uh, Spurgeon said in his devotional morning and evening, he is ever in the center of the weather-beaten company. But when the storm's raging, it's not always obvious, right? It's not always obvious that he's in it. He remains in total control. The wind and the waves still know his name. They still obey his voice. Just at the time, it may feel like it's out of control. It's never really out of control. Okay, so some action points here. Um, I get this from my brother also. He had this idea where when bad things are happening, there's about three, there's fundamentally three ways you can approach it. Uh, the first way, which is totally natural, that's just what normal people do. They become bitter and drift away. Uh, you could also kind of just become mediocre, just kind of sit in your uh, little hermetically sealed bubble and try and play it safe and keep the world away. Or you can faithfully go along with God's plan, even when it's not particularly pleasant, lean in and see what, see what he's up to, see what he's going to do. That's where the amazing stuff happens in the latter course. So to the embittered people out there, I want to share this idea with you. First of all, you've got to understand that there's a couple of facts that you have to, to realize. Number one, God is almighty. And the scriptures testify to that very thoroughly. Uh, the created order, all that is, screams for an almighty God. Um, if you need a little help with that thought, I, I gave a sermon, The World and Faith, uh, last January. January of 18. It's still up on the website. Pull it up. I gave you plenty of reasons why all of this simply demands that there is a God, an almighty God. Uh, the other thing that we need to know is not only is he almighty, but he is good. Uh, this God is good. What more evidence can there be than the love he showed by going to the cross in your stead to purchase your atonement? So if you're sitting there and you're embittered about things that have happened in your past or things that are happening in your present, the truth of the matter is you don't really believe one or the other or both of those things. Because if you did, you'd realize that regardless of how bad it is, God, the almighty God, is still working good in it. You, you, either, you either believe that he can't or doesn't care. That's what you really think if you're embittered right now. So what I would encourage you to do is think about all the lessons that we've learned from the Old Testament patriarchs last week and even from some more recent uh, believers. You've heard stories, right? You've heard, you've, you've gotten the testimonies. Even from this platform, you've heard testimonies of God working in difficult circumstances. And learn to trust the goodness of the Almighty again. It is a wonderful thing because you will find freedom from your resentment. Resentment's a horrible thing. It's very corrosive. It tends to, to consume the vessel that's containing it. All right? And you'll find a new hope for the future. And if you're, if you're in that mediocre camp, you're kind of just you know, floating through life, uh, trying to fly under the radar, right? I want to challenge your concept of risk. Which is more risky? Being out on the high seas and accomplishing your purpose, your mission, or being in the supposedly safe harbor and accomplishing nothing. 
which in the long run is the greater risk? The truth of the matter is, and I don't have to go, time to go into it in detail, the idea of not accomplishing your purpose is sin, right? You're here for a reason. If you're here breathing, you have a purpose, you have a mission, God has a reason for you being here, and you need to be about that. If you're always trying to just play it safe, um, yeah, you're not going to be accomplishing that purpose. Uh, John Shedd said this, a ship in harbor is safe, but, that, but that's not what ships are built for. I was uh, told by Matt Duransky after the first service that, that the father of the uh, U.S. Navy, John Paul Jones, said, if you don't risk, you can't win. So some level of risk, being able to venture out, is required to accomplish your purpose. Uh, Ron Schmidt, the, the senior pastor at my old church, formerly senior pastor, he said, it's like, like God is saying this to us, you need to be willing to be shipwrecked on the island of my sovereignty. Better to be shipwrecked on God's sovereignty than to be sitting around accomplishing nothing in some supposedly safe harbor somewhere and just kind of rotting, all right? So the call is to faithfulness then. Joseph, Moses, and Abraham, they got it. We saw that last week. Through all kinds of trials and tribulations and trouble, they stuck with it and they saw God move. They stumbled along the way. They had some bad ideas. They did wrong things. But they stuck it out and they saw God do great things. Esther got it. All right, The women are getting ready to start up a study on, on Esther, right? So I won't won't spoil any of that for you, but there was a critical point, all right, the, 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 it came to a time when this young Jewish girl had, who had risen to become the queen of all the Persian Empire, amazingly enough, that's an interesting story in its own right, but there's a, there's a, a situation arising where uh, somebody's trying to kill all the Jews, genocide against the Jews, a repeated story throughout history, by the way, Satan is always trying to inspire somebody to kill all the Jews, because that's the, the line through whom the Savior comes, right? So this guy, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, comes to her and says, hey, bad stuff is getting ready to go down, and who knows, but maybe you've come to royalty for just such a purpose, just such a time as this. So her reaction, this is what she says. All right, here's the game plan, because you can't just go waltzing in to the king say, hey, I want to talk to you. Back in the day, if the king didn't summon you and you just like showed up in the throne room, you could lose your head over that, right? It was literally illegal to just waltz in to the throne room. But this is what Esther says. She says, okay, gather all the Jews in Susa, that was the capital city of Persia, and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days. When's the last time you fasted for three days and three nights because something so intense was going down that you, you, you were serious with God about it? She said, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Get, grasp the, the audacity of this young woman, the, the abandon of her courage. How could she think in those terms? If I perish, I perish. Because she didn't think it was that life itself was worthy to be stacked up against the greater mission of preserving the nation of the Jews. Okay? Jim Elliott, he was a martyr missionary to the Wadani people in Ecuador. He got it. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep 
to gain that which he cannot lose. He wasn't even 30 when he was martyred down there. It was an extraordinary missionary. You should read about his life. It's really amazing. But because of what he started, um, the people eventually did come to Christ down there. And the story was told that at one point, his widow was sitting in a, in a worship service next to the man who killed him. People, that, that doesn't make any sense if you don't understand what God is doing in this world. He is reconciling people. He is using radical means to reconcile people to himself. Maybe some of you people know these examples. Jason and Christy Holt. They've been ministering up in North Philadelphia for, for a number of years. Now, there's a lot of really nice places in Philadelphia. North Philadelphia generally isn't considered one of them. Uh, tough neighborhood. They're finally moving out of there. And where are they going? Inner city Chicago. Even a tougher neighborhood, right? Andrew and Abby Gill. How about this couple? They're down taking the good news to the people of Honduras. This is the place where they currently have the second highest per capita murder rate in the, in the world. For several years before this, they had absolutely the highest per capita murder rate, several years in a row, um, where their own citizens are leaving in droves, right? They're going. They're running toward the trouble to take the good news. They, they get it. They understand the mission, the importance of mission. Okay, so this idea of mission is paramount. Um, some of you may be familiar with the, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? And there's, there's a scene in that where uh, the, the good guys are, are kind of contemplating this, this final climactic battle that they're preparing for against overwhelming odds. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the opposing forces of wickedness are just tremendous out, tremendously outnumber them. And so as they're kind of talking it through, this character Gimli... He's puffing on his pipe, and he's thinking about the situation, and this is his idea. He's thinking there, hmm, let's see, certainty of death, small chance for success. What are we waiting for? It's a remarkable, how does, how does that last line connect to the first two? Only if you understand that the mission is paramount. It's a fantastic, uh, uh, great epic Stuff, uh, encourage you to go see it if you hadn't seen it before. Um, I want to, I brought this back from my uh, incarnation sermon from December, this idea of getting into the battle, because this is, this is, it, it fits right in again, right? Got to jettison this desire for ease and comfort. That's all, we all naturally want to have it easy. Throw it out, forget it. You got to get the missional mindset going because. True significance is found in the spiritual war. And so I want you to try and connect everything that's going on in your life, even the hard things, maybe especially the hard things, as associated with the mission. Again, it's not always obvious. You need to take an eternal perspective on this and trust that God is doing extraordinary things through it, even though you don't see the connection, even though you don't see how it's going to play out. He sees the end from the beginning. We don't, okay? So I, I understand there, there may be some that are struggling with, with faith out there. It's normal to have some doubt. 
um, we all struggle with a certain amount of doubt somewhere along the line. That is just our lot because we're not perfected yet. All right, take it to God. There was a guy interacting with Jesus, and Mark, it's recorded in Mark 9. He said, I believe, help my unbelief. If you're here today, you, you have some level of belief, or you wouldn't be here, right? Take your unbelief to the Lord and say, hey, help me. Help me in this, and see what he can do in your life. Uh, I'll leave you with these encouraging words as we get to the point where we're wrapping things up here. Jesus said this in John 16, 33, and I encourage you to look this up and memorize this verse. He said, I have, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He made no bones about it. He told, you, he told us straight out, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I've overcome the world. All right? He is still sovereign over all of this stuff, even those points of tribulation. <clears throat> There's an old hymn uh, called It Is Well With My Soul. And the, the first verse goes this way. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Now these words were written by this guy Horatio Spafford back in the 1800s. He was a successful lawyer and businessman in Chicago, but this was his lot in life. He, he uh, at one point lost his son to an illness. Shortly after that, he had a lot of investment properties in Chicago, all went up in flames in the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. A couple years after that, they were planning a family trip to, to Europe, get off and, and get some respite, work with, they were actually friends with uh, D.L. Moody, and uh, so they were going to go off to Europe and do that. But at the last minute, he had some business problem come up, he, some issues he had to deal with. So he sent his family on ahead, his wife and his daughters, and he was going to follow later on. Well, while his family was going across the Atlantic Ocean, their ship was struck by another vessel, and their ship went down in 12 minutes. Boom, under the water, gone. Mrs. Spafford actually did survive, but the daughters were all drowned. And as he was sailing across that Atlantic and as they were crossing over that very same spot where that ship had gone down and his daughters were lost, he penned the words to this hymn. How does a guy that just had that happen, just had most of his family just ripped away from him, write, it is well with my soul? Well, it's only because of what he wrote in the second verse. Though Satan should buffet, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That what, that's what gave him any grip on sanity and, and hope in all of this. Christ regards our helpless estate. He knows when we're struggling, even just to get by sometimes. And he has already shed his own blood as the atoning, atoning sacrifice for our very souls. Okay? This, this, is, this is the Christ. This is the God that holds it all together when it feels like it's all falling apart on us. And it's very appropriate for us to be thinking in these terms because as we go to the communion, the bread and the cup, 
be thinking on these things. This is the way it is. This is the Christ. We're celebrating this sacrifice of this Christ on our behalf to solve our, our issues and our, our eternal problems. Uh, with, with that, I'd invite you to come forward and get your uh, elements. There's four tables, two in the back, two up front. So go ahead and get out of your seats and uh, get your, the bread and the cup, and uh, we'll celebrate communion together. Okay, so Paul, when he was writing to the church at Corinth, uh, said this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake in faith together. went on to say, in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's partake together. And he closed that thought by saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Uh, I leave you then with uh, a few verses from Romans chapter 8. Great passage. Here's a few segments. I encourage you to go back and read the whole thing on your own time. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, let's, let's close in prayer. Our great God, we acknowledge your sovereignty, that you are the Almighty. We come humbly and offer ourselves. Rid us of ourselves. Make us fit instruments for your service. Lord, help us through the struggles, the challenges of daily life. Help us to know that you're in it. Uh, Lord, show up and do an amazing thing for us, please. We just pray that, that in all of these things, we will indeed overwhelmingly conquer because you strengthen us. It is all in you and through you and by you that we are able to endure. Uh, Lord, we give you the glory now and always. We come humbly. We, uh, we pray, pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.